If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6 this morning. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we're looking at uh, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, or what might better be called the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to read the entirety of Jesus' sermon. You didn't know you were going to get two sermons in one today, but you are, and uh, you're going to get my sermon on Jesus' sermon, and uh, we're going to look at Luke 6, verses 20 through 42, and you'll find that on page 862 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. I know that you'll find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me. Before we do look at this, let me again briefly go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for every single word that you have breathed out. We know that not one word that you have spoken will fall to the ground unfulfilled, and not one word that you've spoken will go uh, will we'll fall to the ground without accomplishing your purposes and without accomplishing all that you have sent it for. We pray this morning that you would send your word out for salvation and for sanctification. We pray that you would soften every heart. We pray that you would illuminate every mind and heart. We pray that you would show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would set our minds on things above where Christ is, sitting at your right hand. We pray that you would soften every heart and enlarge every heart, that you would give us a deeper knowledge of the great things of the mystery of both the Father and the Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And beginning in verse 20 of Luke 6, Jesus now taking his newly constituted Israel, his 12 disciples that he has just chosen from a larger group of disciples, he has taken them up on a mountain, he has come down, Luke says, to a level place in verse 17. And now in verse 20, he writes, when he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so the fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to anyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. <clears throat> Excuse me. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. Even as your father is merciful, judge not, 
You will not be judged. Condemn not. You will, be not con- you will not be condemned. Forgive. You will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there have always been sort of two imbalances in the way that people look at Jesus's ministry and everything that we have recorded in the Gospels throughout church history and particularly in the last 150 years. And those two imbalances or those two ditches are, on the one hand, you have people, and perhaps the majority of us might fall into this first category, who love to hear about the miracles of Jesus, who love to hear about the works of Jesus, who love to hear about the cross, who love to hear about the death of Jesus, who love to hear about all that Jesus has done, but who don't want to hear about what Jesus calls us to be and what he has redeemed us to be and wants us to do. On the other side are those theological liberals who have tried to extrapolate everything out of the Gospels that would be indicative of the teaching of Jesus. Uh, For instance, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, he took everything supernatural out. He didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe that he is who he is. He didn't believe in the need for substitutionary atonement. He stripped out all the ethical teachings. And theological liberals love to say, the Sermon on the Mount, that is my religion. Now, the irony is, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the reason that many believers have a hard time with it is because it's so cutting and so convicting and so challenging. It's actually impossible. We're going to see that uh, here today without a new heart. It's impossible for you to do this without a new heart. Um, And yet, there are a litany of people that think that they can measure up to it in their self-righteousness. There are many people that realize they can't, and yet don't realize what they have in Christ and don't realize everything that Jesus has done for them and everything that he is making them. And then there are others that don't know him that think that they can do it. And the irony is just, um, is just wide and deep and pervasive. Well, as Jesus comes now, he has chosen these 12 
uh, disciples. He has reconstituted Israel as we have been tracing uh, the ministry of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. We have seen him uh, casting out demons, healing the leper, healing the paralytic, healing Peter's mother with the fever. He has been doing those miracles and then He has uh, gone and he has created a new people. He has done miracles of new creation. He has created a new covenant community built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And now he is giving, in a sense, a new law. It is the Magna Carta. Uh, One writer has said when the heralds of the king are appointed, the Magna Carta of the kingdom of heaven is proclaimed. Jesus is equipping his disciples. Notice that Luke tells us there in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Jesus is not speaking these words to the world as the world per se. It's very interesting whenever social and political commentators want to appeal to Christianity, they will lift almost inevitably one or maybe two verses out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, and they will misuse it. Um, Very important for you to understand that. Um, This is given in a very specific context. That context is Jesus as the true Israel of God reconstituting the new Israel with the 12 apostles and giving them this new and magnificent law, as it were, of the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, there is something pervasive about this that you don't, perhaps quite see as clearly in Matthew. Um, If you took uh, Matthew 5 through 7 and you took Luke chapter 6 and you put them side by side, you would see that what Luke has essentially done is he's taken the, the, the major overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount and he has either given it to us from the Sermon on the Mount or he is recording Jesus preaching an abbreviated message of it, but he is giving you the essential components without all of the other uh, nuances and details that he gives in Matthew based on that context. Now, here's something that Luke does that's interesting, though. Luke shows us that everything that Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Plain is shrouded in the fact of eternity. Everything that Jesus is going to teach in these verses, is clothed in the realities of eternity. Jesus is going to give us three things. He's going to tell us that in his kingdom, his people are marked by eternal values, his people have eternal attitudes, and his people have eternal fruit. We'll notice that as he gives us first and foremost uh, these eternal values, he gives us what we call the Beatitudes, verses 20 through 26, um, Uh, You'll know these probably better from Matthew, where Matthew gives us more detail. And he tells us that in the kingdom of God, those who are blessed, those who are satisfied, those who know the blessing of God, those who have been redeemed by God, those who have been reconciled to God and know what it is to be in a state of blessing are people who understand and value eternal things. And Matthew is going to tell us in more detail that they are the poor in spirit. They are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are those who are meek. They are those who are merciful. They are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, We know those Beatitudes so well. What I want to do, though, before I look at these, is I want to emphasize something this morning that you don't want to miss. And that is the fact that Jesus is not telling you, here's how to be a Christian. Please get that. 
there is a way you could hear the Sermon on the Plain improperly. And that would be to hear it in your conscience as saying, do better, try harder, and God will accept you. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying, if you're just more like me, you'll go to heaven. Um, I actually didn't sing one of the lines in the hymn that we sang earlier. Christian children must be as good or obedient as he. The problem is they're not. That's the problem. They, they must not be as good and obedient as Jesus to go to heaven because he was perfect. He was perfect. As good as Jesus is perfect. He kept God's law perfectly. We are called to a life of obedience. We are redeemed in order to obey. But Jesus doesn't give us the Sermon on the Mount so that you would say, I need to be a better person. I'll try better. Eric Alexander captures this so well. He says, what I need is not a lecture on how to live, but a savior who will change my life. I don't need a lecture on how to live better. I need a savior who will change my life. Alexander says, what I need is not moral counsel, but a transformation in my character. What I need is not someone to come and scold me with high standards, but someone to come and to put a new heart into me and make me a new creature. My friends, nothing less than that is what the authentic Jesus does. He does not come to mix a little religion into your previous pattern of life. He comes to make you a new creature. In the Sermon on the Mount, we are not reading advice for someone who would enter Jesus' kingdom, but the marks of those who already have. Now, this is profoundly important because our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works, and we can imperceptibly slide in there with a legal spirit and we can pursue what some of the old uh, Scottish writers called legal sanctification or legal holiness, where we are very legal in our drive to do better and be better. And Jesus isn't telling us, do better, be better. He's saying, here is the condition of those that I have redeemed and made new creatures. Here are those who are blessed. Here's what marks them. They are poor. They are hungry. He says, They weep now, and they are hated and persecuted and spurned on account of the Son of Man now. Now, there are so many things in here that we could cover this morning. One thing that we need to say and we need to deal with is the thorny issue of what does Jesus mean as he starts to go through this state of blessedness in the new creation, what does he mean, blessed are the poor? Does he mean blessed are the financially poor? Does he mean blessed are the spiritually poor? Theologians have been divided for centuries. You can read 10 Reformed theologians on this and get different emphases and angles, and you're almost left with the sense that Jesus is being purposefully ambiguous. There is a purposeful ambiguity here In Luke, when he says, blessed are you poor. Now, what we can say is Jesus is not commending laziness leading to poverty as a virtue. We can say that. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who are financially poor because they've been lazy. Otherwise, we should all go be lazy because then we'll be blessed. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, as Matthew says, as Matthew uh, captures Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount that there is an acknowledgement of depravity, there's acknowledgement of sinfulness, there's acknowledgement that we don't have what we need in ourselves. You know, Jesus says this, doesn't he, in Revelation 
chapters 2 and 3, he addresses those seven churches. And to one of those churches, he says, you think that you're rich, you have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're poor, blind, miserable, naked, wretched. He's not saying financially rich. He's saying you think you have attained to a level of security and power and provision in life that spiritually you don't need anything and you're good spiritually, you're good physically, you've, you've taken control of your life, you've made the changes you need to make, you've pulled yourself up by the bootstraps, you've done good, and you're sailing along and Jesus says you don't know that you're poor, naked, miserable, blind, and wretched. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, but we don't have any money. Buy from me gold refined in the fire and eye salve so that you can see and white garments so that you may be clothed and Jesus is going to make those who are poor in spirit rich. He's going to give them the kingdom. Um, He's going to make those who hunger now for righteousness. He's going to make them to be satisfied. And he's going to make those who weep now to laugh. And he's going to make those who are persecuted now to leap for joy. Jesus essentially is giving us the categories of uh, provision, power, pleasure, protection in giving us these things. These are the things after which men seek in the natural kingdom, in the fallen world. Um, How many times have people told us, you know, if I just could make a little bit more, I would be good here and here and here. My life would be complete if I could just do this. Here's my, I've never really liked this language, here's my bucket list. Of things, if I could just, if I can just do this and this and this and this, and if I can just attain this and this and this goal, then I'm good. And Jesus comes and he says, "That's the now mentality," and I came to overthrow that and turn that upside down. And I came to give you not a now mentality, but a then mentality, an eternal perspective. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying, everybody in the kingdom of God, everybody who's been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, automatically has an eternal perspective on things. Um, Christians mourn over their sin. Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness because they realize they don't have righteousness in themselves. Christians are poor in spirit. Christians are willing to be persecuted and excluded and reviled for the sake of the Son of Man. Now, again, as with uh, the poverty of spirit, the hunger is predominantly spiritual in nature. I, I think... There may be a sense where Jesus is telling his disciples because they are going to become financially poor as they go out and they obey him and they fulfill the Great Commission. And they go out and he tells them, don't take anything with you. And they've given up businesses. And so in service to Jesus, they have become poor financially, materially. They, they've given up in following Jesus. There is that. But, but behind that and beneath that is the poverty of spirit that makes them willing to go because they realize they found the Savior. They realize who the one giving this message is. They realize that he is the one that has called them to proclaim. He's the king. He's the herald. This is his Magna Carta. He is the one commissioning them to go out and to proclaim the gospel. And so in doing so, they are becoming poor. They will at times become hungry. Remember the Apostle Paul, 14 days without food on that boat when he's persecuted. Uh, They will weep. They will weep over Stephen, the first martyr. When he's martyred for the sake of Christ, they will weep over the hardships of life, over the trials. Those who are blessed are those 
that mourn over the state of this world. They mourn over their own sin, the sin of their loved ones, the sin of those around them, the condition of the church. They mourn over events in the world and injustices and everything else that is upside down and and it's not right. Now, going back just for a moment to think about the fact that Jesus is not saying, here's how you become a Christian, here's how you go to heaven, try to do this, try to be this. He's not saying that. He's saying, here's what a new creation looks like. Here is, here is what I am going to do in you. Because at the end of the day, all of this is absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. It is as impossible as the leper that Jesus healed getting healed. So becoming poor and hungry and mourning and being persecuted for the Son of Man's sake Not just persecuted because people don't like you. Jesus is not praising Harvey Weinstein. He's not. He's saying, for the Son of Man's sake, people who are following him and are faithfully seeking to be active in service in his kingdom. And and yet all of that is impossible. And you have to come to terms with the fact that it's impossible because if you think you have it in yourself, you'll never get there. You see, that's that's the beauty. Um, One theologian points out that you know, and, and this has always been one of those things that's been interesting to me. You have the birth narratives of Jesus, and then you have sort of the upbringing of Jesus in the temple here in Luke, and then you have this litany of miracles and this focus on him destroying the kingdom of darkness and restoring what was uh, corrupted through the fall, right? He is restoring nature. He is not... Going against nature, he is restoring. He came into the world to restore. The man with the withered hand gets his hand restored. And then you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, okay, now we just shifted into teaching gear. What do I do with this? I was tracking with all the miracles. They were pointing to who Jesus was. How does this fit with that? And one theologian points out, and I thought this was profound. Jesus is actually doing exactly the same thing when he gives the Sermon on the Mount as he's doing with the miracles. He's telling you, if you're ever going to be in a condition of blessedness, it is going to have to take the supernatural miracle of regeneration. So what I've been able to do in healing the leper and the paralytic, the man with the withered hand, Peter's mother-in-law, what I'm able to do in the natural world I'm able to do in the spiritual world supernaturally so that what you should find impossible because it is counter to everything that we are by nature will not be impossible because I will do it in you. Um, I think that's remarkable. So that far from feeling absolutely hopeless every time I read the Sermon on the Mount, I can realize that the Christ who has redeemed me is working in me and that these things are in some way characteristic of every true believer. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon, series of sermons that ended up in a volume called Charity and Its Fruits, and um, it's really one of the greatest works ever written. And after going through what love is and what love looks like, and, and you just feel completely undone when you read this book. And if you don't, obviously you're self-righteous, and he deals with self-righteousness throughout the book. And, and then he comes to the section, he says, he says, look, I'm not asking you if you have these things perfectly exhibited. He says, Jesus isn't calling you to sinlessness. You are never going to attain sinlessness in this life, ever. 
um, you will grow in grace. And Edwards then says, but when you look at yourself, if you're a true believer, you should see these things are characteristic of me to some sense. I hate my sin. I mourn over my sin. I realize that I don't have what I need in me. I realize that I need righteousness that's outside of me from the Lord. I'm willing to take up my cross and follow Jesus and to be reviled for him. I'm not saying I want to. I'm not saying all the time I'm doing that like I should be. I'm not, and you're not. But this should be basic, new, eternal values. This is a value system. This says what I value now because I'm in Christ, because I've been raised up with Christ, I value the things he values. He is making me what I should be, what I was not by nature. Isn't that wonderful? That's Sermon on the Mount is saying Jesus is making us what we should be. He is restoring what man should be while we live in this fallen world and then in all eternity. Notice those promises of rewards. Uh, if you're poor now in spirit, yours will be the kingdom of God, but it is now the kingdom of God. That Eternal is already now, and yet it is to come. Notice that Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. See, the Christian is living in anticipation of what's to come, not in what's in front of our eyes. I love in the Pilgrim's Progress that, um, I don't love it because I feel like... um, Passion rather than patience, but there's the two boys in the room, patience and passion, and um, there's that picture where the interpreter brings Christian into the room, and and there is all this money thrown at the feet of passion, and he's he's going after it, and he's 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 uh, gathering it up, as it were, and then patience is just sitting there in the chair, the two boys. And Christian says to the interpreter, you know, who are these? And he says, well, this is patience and this is passion. Passion wants his now. He wants his inheritance now. He wants what's his now. He wants his best life now. And patience, he's willing to wait. He knows that there's a better inheritance. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying those who are blessed as new creation members of the kingdom of God are those who are like patience, not passion. We're not living in the now. We're living in the eternal realities of what is to come. Notice, he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now that word weep is sort of, or that word laugh uh, denotes, when he uses it in the woes in the moment, it denotes sort of a scoffing laugh as you advance past other people. So as a negative now, There is a joyful realization of all that God does in the hereafter for those who weep now, who weep over their sin and over the condition of this fallen world and over the state of men and women in this world. And then notice that Jesus says those who are persecuted now will in that day leap for joy, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, there is that series of woes. Notice that as he is giving that eternal value, Jesus wants to drive this point home. Uh, R.T. Sproul said that God is not this cosmic bellhop that you like to envision him as. He's not this sort of celestial Santa Claus who's never going to pour out his wrath. Here is 
Here is the Son of God, come from the bosom of the Father. And one of the things he says after saying is, the state of those who are in my kingdom is a state of blessedness. These are the things of the blessed man or woman. He now says, whoa, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which Jesus is not just heaping condemnation, but sort of, uh, sort of saying, watch out. This is a reality. There are, there are real warnings. There is, a, there is a real heartfelt burden that Jesus is placing when he says it. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, uh, we are meant to take that and we are meant to ask ourselves, of which one of these values is my life characterized by? Um, Jesus is not saying, pray to do better. Um, this, this sermon is eliciting, is meant to elicit from us a response. Am I living in the now or am I living the eternal realities? Am I living in light of now, what I want now, or am I living in light of what God has said he will give me in the hereafter. It's everything. Very simple. The values of the kingdom of God are very simple. When Christ has redeemed us, he makes us eternally minded. But then secondly, he gives us eternal attitudes in the here and now. Now, uh, the Lord is going to do two things here in verses 27 through 42. And we're not going to look at this in great detail, but what I want to do is kind of make this simple for us. What Jesus does here is in, in verses 27 through 36, he's going to tell us how members in his kingdom are to be like God. And then in verses 37 through 42, he's going to tell us one way that we're not to be like God. So he's going to tell us one way that we're to be like God. Notice the end of uh, the first section, verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. So there is one way you and I are to imitate God. And then there is one way that we are not to be like God. Judge not, and you will not be judged. There are two things. Behind this background is the eternal God, what he's like, what he does, what his character is, what is given to him to do. And, and in light of who he is, Jesus is saying, so you now, if you are, belong to him, should be like him. One of the chief things is that he is kind and merciful to the unthankful. He, when he hung on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his enemies. He blessed those that persecuted him. He prayed for those that abused him. He gave his cheek to be struck. He gave his back to be struck. He gave his garments. He went the extra mile. He did that out of love for enemies. The Apostle Paul will drive this home in Romans 5. He'll say, while we were enemies in due time, God sent his son because he loved us to demonstrate his love. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. That's that is the whole locus of the gospel, the love of God in Christ for his enemies. Now, Jesus is going to tell us what we're called to um, by way of new eternal attitudes there in that first section by telling us what it doesn't look like. Now, verses 32 
to 34, he says, look, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. We don't even love the people we love like we should. So, we don't love our loved ones like we should. We don't love our friends like we should. Our friends annoy us. Our loved ones annoy us. We annoy them. And yet, Jesus knows that we have a tendency to love people who love us. And he says, look, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. The unregenerate do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount back. So there's nothing virtuous in loving people who love us. There's nothing virtuous in doing good to people that do good to us. There's nothing ultimately virtuous in in giving something to somebody who has need because they're going to give it back to us. There's no virtue in that. That's standard, fair, common grace. Even unbelievers do that, Jesus says. But the believer, who is a new creature in Christ, is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who knows that we live in a fallen world. You know, this is the remarkable thing. Jesus is not, Jesus is not naive about the way of the world. He knows how awful the world is. He knows how people are going to treat you. He knows that you're going to have enemies. He knows that you're going to be hated. He knows that people are going to treat you unjustly and you're going to treat others unjustly. He knows. He knows what the world is like. He experienced it all on the cross. He knows what world we're living in. And that Jesus says, look, this is not, you know, because Karl Marx, reflecting on all this in his response to Hegel says, Religion is the opium of the people, and we've got to get past that. It's a sedative, and you've got to become a strong, independent, self-sufficient person. And Jesus says, no, the kind of person that you need to be is the kind of person I'm going to make you in my kingdom. And that's a person who's going to love people who don't love you, who's going to do good to people that don't do good to you, who's going to give to people that aren't going to give back to you, who's going to pray for people who abuse you. Now, Jesus is not saying he's going to make us people who enable people that won't work or enable abusers. He's not saying that. If someone's abusing you, you need to go to the authorities. There are channels by which God has established protection and safety. It's very interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say do good to your abusers. He says pray for them. There's even a distance in that. Pray for them. But what Jesus is telling us is that life in his kingdom has, is marked by a radically different attitude in his people than everybody else in the world. Now, I think part of our problem and why we don't see ourselves more in here, we who are regenerate, is not because we're unregenerate, but because all day long we're taking in philosophy and teaching from the world. We fill our minds with, with news And with media, social media, everything around us, we're just taking it in and we're listening to unbelievers all day long. Every show, every news channel, every political agenda, everything we're taking in, unregenerate people telling us, be vindictive, get back, you do better, you go first, you be the best, you be rich now, you do what's good for you, you take care of yourself, nobody should treat you this way. All day long you're taking it in. And Jesus comes and he says... My friend, that is everything contrary to what I've redeemed you to be. I've redeemed you to love those that hurt you. I've redeemed you to do good to those that do evil to you. 
I have redeemed you to pray. And you all know this. It's impossible to harbor bitterness and resentment for somebody that's hurt you if you're praying for them. It's absolutely impossible. You start to love somebody when you start praying for them. I have experienced that. You may not like them. You can say that, too. I don't really like that person. But you start to love them in your heart. You want good for them. Um, It's not entitlement. It's an eternal attitude. And then, in so much as Jesus is also telling us there's a way that we're not to be like God. We're to be like God in that we're to be merciful and we're to love our enemies and we're to do good to those that uh, persecute us and who abuse us. And then there's a way that we're not to, and that is we're not to judge sinfully. Now, uh, this is one of those very difficult portions of scripture. Um, Jesus everywhere tells us to make judgments. In fact, right after this, he's going to tell you that um, all of us are standing there and making a judgment. Is that a good tree or is that a bad tree? So, in the very next section, Jesus is telling us that we are going to make judgments about whether people have sincere fruit or not in their lives. So what is Jesus saying? Well, notice that he says, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Jesus is talking about harboring a spirit of bitterness that results in wishing condemnation on others or making condemnatory statements about others. With bitterness, unforgiveness, um, harshness, self-righteousness, and a desire for harm on them. Um, He bundles in there. Notice that. Judge not, and you'll be not judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Now, the ground of our forgiveness is not because we forgive. He's saying a forgiven person is a forgiving person. A person who knows how much we have been forgiven of by Christ is someone who's ready to forgive anyone who's hurt them and come to them repentantly. They're ready to forgive another, not harbor bitterness, not harbor grudges, not harbor uh, ill will, not wanting condemnation for others. Now, isn't that one of the awful thoughts that we can actually want condemnation for other people when we're just as sinful as them? That's where Jesus goes next. He says, why do you look at the log? Why do you look at the speck? the sawdust in your brother's eye, and you don't see the log in your own eye. Um, Jack Miller was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he has this great uh, statement as he reflects on, you know, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't focus on your own? And Jesus is clearly saying, and Miller says, you know, you, you should be so consumed with correcting yourself. He says, that's a big job. As you correct yourself, now that's a big job. You might not even have time for correcting other people. I love that. I love that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying we don't help others grow spiritually. But he's saying our propensity by nature is to focus on the trivia and to have a censorious spirit on the trivia of others. Yeah, I don't like this about so-and-so. I don't like this about so-and-so. I can't believe so-and-so did that. You know, isn't that one of the great indictments against us, that the first thing out of our mouths when somebody's name is brought up is a criticism so often? I know that's an indictment for me. That's, that's what Jesus is preaching against. He's saying, don't go out there and don't be so consumed 
with the minutia of other people's lives when you should be seeing just how much. See, Jesus isn't calling you to sinless perfection in the Sermon on the Mount. He says you have a log in your eye, and you've got to focus on it. He says you need to be forgiven. It has to do with the attitude that you're harboring in your heart. Um, now, finally, he, he tells us that there are new fruits and evidences. And, and I don't want us to miss this. You know, Judas heard this sermon. Judas heard this sermon. And Judas was one such hypocrite as heard this sermon. Um, one of the reasons the Sermon on the Mount is so scathing is there's no neutrality. Jesus isn't saying, well, here's a spectrum, and on this spectrum, maybe you're here, or maybe you're here, maybe you're here, there is growth and grace. But he's not saying maybe you're here, maybe you're here, or here, or here. There's, there's 15 different categories. He says there's two categories. Either you're a new creature in Christ who are marked by those beatitudes, those blessings, by that new value system as someone who has a new attitude or you're a hypocrite. That's it. Two categories. Judas heard this. And now, you know what's really interesting about Judas? Judas could play the part so well. Judas, remember in the, uh, the house where Mary is washing the feet of Jesus, preparing him for burial, and Judas gets irate, and he acts like he cares for the poor. He's a social justice warrior. He says, this could have been sold for money and given to the poor. Why, why are we wasting this? And Jesus says, she's done this for me. Judas knew how to put on all the externals of religion, even that he cared for the poor. And yet Judas, Jesus says, was a devil. Um, notice that Jesus says that it's impossible. Just as it's impossible to bear good fruit, it's impossible if you're not regenerate. It's impossible for an unregenerate man to bear good fruit. It's only possible for an unregenerate person to bear bad fruit. It's only possible for a regenerate person to bear good fruit. Now, yes, a regenerate person has that in intermingling of the flesh and the spirit, the indwelling sin, yes, but a good tree will necessarily bear good fruit. A bad tree will necessarily bear bad fruit. Notice what Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. So these things become evident. Even in time, they become evident. Um, I did a study this week on the, the word deceived in the New Testament, and it's actually quite interesting, all the, all the different occasions in which self-deception arise. Several times it's about being deceived by false teachers. Um, but the predominant teaching of the New Testament on self-deception is that we have a propensity to fail to examine ourselves. We have a propensity to give ourselves the pass. We have the propensity to look out, to judge others, to want to look at the speck in our brother's eye, to throw the scriptural burden off of me and to put it on somebody else. You know, it's very, actually very easy for us to hear this. And instead of saying... 
What is my responsibility to be to this and to Jesus in particular? It's very easy to say, I really hope somebody else is hearing this right now. Super easy to think, I really hope someone's hearing this because they really need it. No, you really need it, and I really need it. And Jesus tells us that, look, there are two trees, there are two foundations. You're either building your house on the rock, who is Christ, or you are building your house on sand. I remember in probably about 2010, I saw a documentary about Dubai, and I was fascinated. Dubai is the new New York. All the millennials want to go to Dubai and vacation. And, and as I'm studying about Dubai and I'm watching all these uh, documentaries and videos, I, I see this one where they say, well, we've run out of land to build on, and so now what we're doing is they're taking big hoses from the ocean and they're blowing sand to create land. And then they're building like the biggest skyscrapers in the world on the sand. And I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. Like, I'm not an architect. I don't play one on television. I don't know anything about architecture. But I know that Jesus said, if you build your house on sand, it's not going to end well. If you live a life of religious hypocrisy, it will not end well. If you put the best foot out, best face on, if you live trying to do external religion, it will not end well. If you live as a member of Christ's kingdom, regenerated, trusting him, build up in him a new creature, living in union with Jesus Christ in light of what he did on the cross, in light of all that he's done for you, in light of the gospel, in light of the grace of God, if you live as a member of the kingdom of the Son of God's love, you are founded on the rock. Now, what does this mean as we close? It means two things, and I want you to listen quite carefully to this. First, it means that we should be people who long to see those values and attitudes and fruit uh, exhibited in our lives um, from our hearts because of the working of Christ in us. It should make us want this. I want to become a person who's poor. I want to become a person who is hungry. I want to become a person who is mourning. I want to become a person who's willing to be persecuted for the Son of Man's sake. Um, I want to become a person that loves those that hurt me because people are going to hurt you. Don't be deceived. People are going to hurt you. You are going to have enemies. They may be in your own family. They may be in the church, certainly in the world. Um, But then I want to say to you that If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. You are blessed. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is an immutable blessing. That doesn't change. Um, God doesn't remove his covenantal blessings from you. If you're in Christ, you have every blessing of God. This is a description of what the servants of Christ look like. Now, if you're like me, and you read the Sermon on the Mount often, and you just feel convicted and feel like a failure, I want to read just one thing to you. Jonathan Edwards, in Charity and Its Fruits, when he goes through that section, he says, you know, look, Christ is not saying that the Christian life here now is a perfect and sinless life. He says, on the contrary, a Christian life may be attended with many imperfections. It will be. And yet, it's a holy life. Or a truly Christian life. And so Edward says, ask yourself these questions. And I want to leave you with these questions. Because if you say no to these questions, that means you need to be brought from death to life, and you need to undergo the miracle of regeneration, 
and you need to be transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. That has to happen. Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Um, But if you can answer yes to these questions, Edward said, be assured that you are a member of his kingdom. He says, have you supposed grace such influence as to render those things which you have failed loathsome, grievous, and humbling to you? So when you fail, when you sin, does God's grace come and convict you and make you feel grieved that you sinned against him? Does, does his grace humble you? Second question, do you carry about with you a dread of sin? We should be afraid of sin. When we walk up to the line of sinning, we should be afraid. There should be a dread of sin, both what it is before God and its consequences in the world. Edward said, are you sensible of the beauty and the pleasantness of the ways of holy practices. All these things should be beautiful to us. Isn't that amazing? Poverty of spirit should be a beautiful thing to us. Mercifulness should be a beautiful thing to us. Loving our enemies should be seen as a beautiful thing. Edward says, are you sensible of the beauty and pleasantness of the ways of holy practice? Fourth, he says, do you find that you particularly delight in those practices that may be called Christian practices in distinction from worldly morality. Do you love to be in worship? Do you love to read the Bible? Do you love to sing praises to God? Do you love to be with other believers talking about the things of the Lord and being busy serving in the kingdom of God? Edwards then says, do you hunger and thirst after holy practice? Are you pursuing those things knowing that you don't have them in and of yourselves? Six, do you make a business to live Holy as God would have you in all respects, or the areas of your life that you're not addressing. And then he says, seventh, do you greatly desire that you may know all that is your duty? Do you want to know what Christ requires of you? Um, now, I think any true believer is going to say yes and no to all those questions because of the imperfections that remain in us but we should be pushing out against our flesh and saying, yes, that is what I love. That is what I want. You know, Christ has given himself for us, and um, the least we can do is give ourselves back to him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus is saying, I've done this to make you this so that you will now serve me because I've redeemed you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that there are so many things in which we fail, and Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we have not always loved your commandments as we should. We have not loved uh, Christian living as we should. We have not loved the way of holiness as we should. We have not loved those distinguishing marks of the Beatitudes and all that you have redeemed us to be and call us to be, and so we pray that you would... Uh, transform us by your grace. We pray that you would renew us this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us your spirit to do the impossible in us and to make us the sort of people that you want us to be. We pray as we come to the table that you would make us to acknowledge our sin and even more than that, to acknowledge the sufficiency of your sacrifice. We pray these things in your name. Amen.